You're listening to Alcoholics Alive, where recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous share their experience on how they live AA as a way of life. None of our participants get paid or speak for AA. Here are your hosts, Shank and Wayne. Shank, we made it to season four. Can't believe it. Can't believe that. We still have people <laughs> listening, which is amazing. It's pretty impressive. So that is pretty impressive. Hey, welcome everyone. We are excited to have have you on today. We're excited to uh, to kick off episode one of season four. So this uh, this season we are using statements out of the ninth step promises out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous on page 83 and 84. So we're basically taking uh, those sentences and turning them into episode titles and episode topics. So we're excited to, uh, to do that this year. There'll be 12 episodes, actually 13 episodes on, on that. And we will be, uh, we'll talk more about it a little later, but we're going to be doing the battle of the books. So we're going to actually have the the book Alcoholics Anonymous compete against the twelve by twelve battle. Shank, the battle. Shank will talk a little bit more about that as we get later into the episode. But we, we're excited to have our guest on today. He's one of our favorite guys. His name is Aloha Bill. Aloha, how are you today? Aloha, I'm doing well. Good to be on. Thanks. Yep. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I, I, I'm I'm not a spring chicken. Let's put it this way. I'm pushing. <laughs> I, I'm I'm pushing eighty, and you know, so I'm an old rooster. But um, you know, I I was thinking my first experience or or even uh, heard about Alcoholics Anonymous was when I was in college and. My nickname was Keg. That could tell you a little bit about me. <laughs> and one of my professors um, pulled me aside after class and he asked if I wanted to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with him. And I thought, this is really stupid. This is a, a hotel accounting class. Why is he asking me to do that? <laughs> and so I declined. And uh, then uh, my next AA meeting, I, I thought that, you know, I... Um, I was unique and, and different, and I had to go to a, a, a special kind of AA meeting. And I, I went to this meeting at the suggestion of my therapist, and I walked in there, and there were people in drag and people in leather. And I thought, <laughs> nice. this isn't for me. I didn't understand a word that they were talking about, and I politely left before the meeting was over with. So it took me a long time before I, I ever got there, but... And I, I made the rounds of, uh, I counted up just the other day, five different treatment facilities and countless times in uh, psych wards and ER and that kind of thing. But um, And at one time I had 15 years of sobriety uh, and um, I, I did AA my way, as they say, you know, kind of like Burger King sobriety. I, I kind of picked and choose the steps I wanted to take and, you know, how I wanted to take them. And so, um, but I was active in AA. I, I was involved in the fellowship. I was involved in service, kind of worked my way up in service. And 
And then I got a promotion. I had to move from one island in Hawaii to another island. And I didn't like the way those people did AA. I didn't get a new sponsor. I probably for a month maybe went to meetings and then I stopped going to meetings and I white knuckled it for about five years. And then I, um, I took a trip to Japan right after 9-11 when the airfare was cheap. And I was in this little town and uh, uh, restaurant where nobody spoke English and somebody had a nice tall beer at the table next to me. And I just pointed to that. And it took me 20 years to get back here. And, uh, you know, it had been pointed out to me that uh, by a couple of doctors, you know, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're not going to last too long, maybe six or nine months. And so I kept doing what I was doing and uh, I couldn't, you know, towards the end, couldn't go more than a couple hours. Uh, and then I had to, to drink to stop the shakes. And sometimes that didn't help. And just it was no great white light or anything like that. One morning, I just decided, well, I'll try it just one more time. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'll do whatever they tell me to do. I put myself into detox and followed the instructions. And, um, you know, I've, I've been here since uh, June 1st, 2022, just doing what you guys are telling me to do and what the big book tells me to do and what A is telling me to do. And my life is a whole lot different than it ever was before in a much better way. I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen, but that's kind of the – the, where I'm at right now, and and I'm I'm loving the fellowship. I'm loving sobriety, and uh, my life is a lot better than it's been in many many years. And that's about it. The short version for me. Well, it's awesome to have you on. I I uh, I learned something new there. I've never heard the term Burger King sobriety, <laughs> but I, I I like that. Yeah, have it your way, huh? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you may have you may have a new nickname this week, Keg. I, I don't. I know you may have said that, but I don't think I ever really caught on to that. So, no, that was my fraternity nickname. I have a mug Keg. still. Get on. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep calling you Aloha for now. Shank, what's the topic? All right, our topic today is halfway through. Um, I think as Jay Wayne said at the top of the episode here we are going through the ninth step promises this season uh i will go ahead and just read the entire thing right now i don't know that we'll do that every episode but this comes from alcoholics anonymous um at page 83 and 84 in the fourth edition and it says if we are painstaking about this phase of our development we will be amazed before we are halfway through we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So those are the nine step promises right there. And for 
this season, we're just going to go through each sentence. So our topic today is the first sentence, which is, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. What do you think, Jay Wayne? Well, I think that um, I learned something new just a little while ago when we were preparing for the episode, and it was the term painstaking. I, I actually just assumed that that meant arduous and like trudging and painful. But Shank looked it up. And it actually doesn't mean that. It means like being very careful or thorough or diligent, uh, paying attention Faithful. to stuff. Faithful. Mm-hmm. Attentive. Yeah. yeah. So I, I I thought that was interesting that I didn't know that. But <laughs> I guess I guess if you listen to season three, that shouldn't surprise anybody. I, if you of- have been sponsored by Jay Wayne, please send us an email. And he will make amends Yep. for not knowing. And I like the term phase of our development. So, I mean, I think I've always looked at that, that we're being kind of developed spiritually. And that the ninth step is just a, a part of that process of being developed spiritually. Um, so, and I know my own personal experiences that I, well, I guess the question would be amazed before we're halfway through what? I mean, that's a question. Yes. Aloha, what do you think about that question? Well, um, you know, I don't know whether amazing is necessarily, you know, it's maybe to me it would be like we become aware uh, of the changes, not necessarily. I didn't, I didn't, seek any i didn't experience any amazing things uh it was you know just kind of progressive so uh and initially i was going to say you know when i first heard that you know in meetings when they read the promises i was thinking they were talking about all 12 steps that yes. halfway through the steps same not necessarily step nine until i really got to step nine right Well, so, you know, I can definitely say when I was new, um, I I went to several different meetings and maybe you all have this experience too. And sometimes the promises would just be read. Like there are some meetings where they read the promises at the beginning or the end of meetings. And there was this meeting where they chanted the steps that I really did not enjoy going to, mostly because I did not know the steps to chant them. And I just like felt weird about it. And I'm like, oh, this is a cult. But anyway, um, and one time I read the promises, I'm pretty sure it was at that meeting. And I was like, dang, where is this in the book? Like, what are the nine step promises? This is crazy. Um, Like, is all of this really going to happen? And it was not until, uh, you know, several years into my sobriety where maybe I was told this before, um, but they were like, oh, yeah, this is halfway through your amends. Like nine is not half of 12. And I was like, wow, (laughs) (laughs) wow, that's so cool. So I can definitely relate to that, though. I did not know that that's what that was talking about. Yeah, well, and the interesting thing is that a lot of the groups that read the promises, they don't tell you it's the ninth step promises. Yeah. They just kind of 
introduce them as, hey, here are the promises. And then they're red. Exactly. I mean, I guess they're, yeah. I guess it's done to give people hope and give them something to think about. But I know when I was new, if they were red, I wouldn't have had a clue what they were. I was, I was in a, such a fog. Um, I know. That okay. Word- so this is talking about being halfway through our amends, correct? I think that's the way I understand it. Aloha. Yeah. I, I once I, I got over the fact that it was not halfway through the steps it, it, to me, it's halfway through making your amends. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So being halfway through the amends, how long is that supposed to take? Listen, all it says is if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, like how long is that phase supposed to last? It lasts forever. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> You know, we're continually making amends or, you know, with me making amends, I have, you know, uh, you know, my eighth step and and coming up with a list of of, uh, people that I need to make amends to. There's a lot of them on there that I have no way how to contact them or uh, some of them are dead. I mean, so, you know, it's I don't think that, that you ever stop making amends. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you're going to get real technical, I mean, do you do you look at your list and then let's say you got 50 names or 50 things on the list, do you do you, do you check them off and then when you get to 20 when you get done with 25, then you're like magically amazed? Listen, I can't <laughs> I, I can't be 100% uh <laughs> on this, but I could see myself like the first, I don't know. Yes. A few years of my sobriety, like really doing that and telling my sponsees or people, women that I'm helping, like, okay, you have 20 amends. So when you get at 10, let's take a look and see if you're amazed, which is astonished and dumbfounded and stunned and shocked. Are you shocked now that you're halfway there? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I could have seen a time dramatic. where I, I'd have done that. Yeah. I was, um, I'll tell you though, my I think my experience as we've been sitting here talking, when I, I do think the term amazing is kind of overused nowadays, just in general. Everything's amazing. Oh, that was amazing. Well, man, what I like really? awesome. Awesome, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm guilty. Um but I mean, when I got sober, I mean the I had just this dark outlook on life. And I really thought that people were out to get me. And I really thought that people had wronged me and that, you know, I was so selfish, self-centered and self-conscious that I just thought everybody was just like, you know, thinking about me and nobody wanted anything good for me. And when I, when I took the steps, uh, particularly the first seven steps, I, I, I started to have a little shift in attitude but when I made a few just amends early on, I mean, I knew that people were going to you know, not accept it. I knew that they were going to tell me how bad of a person I was. And I did have the experience because when I actually told the truth to somebody, they were actually willing to help me. And, 
And I realized that all these people really wanted the best for me, that all these people really had not done a whole lot to hurt me, that I had, I had made those decisions. And I started to view people and life differently and started to, I mean, I, I guess amazing could be, could be the right word. Um, but it was certainly, I had a different outlook on life and I certainly, uh, realized that the world wasn't as dark as I thought it was and that, that most people actually do want good for you. So I, I certainly did have that experience. Aloha, tell us about a, a, a powerful experience you've had with an amends. Well, actually, uh, I was thinking that the, you know, I, first of all, I, I asked my sponsor, can I do the easy ones first? And he was like, no, let's start with the hard. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, hardest good idea. Was, the hardest one was my, my ex-wife and, and, um, and I, she lives in, in uh, Western part of North Carolina. So we're, we're in the same state. Uh, and I, uh, I called, uh, and she didn't pick up the phone and I, I wanted to make arrangements and, my sponsor and I had even talked about driving six hours over there for me to, to uh, if she was agreeable to, for me to make my amends face to face. And so I left a message and never heard back. And then um, was decided that after a while that um, I would write her a letter. And I, I did a, uh, you know, a first draft and reviewed it with my sponsor and he made some suggestions maybe that, things that I should edit or add. <laughs> and um, so I did that and I, I sent it off and, uh, you know, that's been close to uh, well, nine months now and I've never heard anything back, but the next two were my, my kids. And um, I, you know, I prayed about them and I called each one of them separately. First of all, I, I made arrangements to tell them kind of, when I could call them and when would be convenient uh, and, and explained why I was calling and what I wanted to do. And was it, and it was interesting because my daughter said that she knew what I was doing because one of her coworkers had made amends to her and it sat down. So, wow. <laughs> but um, so she was, she was ready for me when I called. <laughs> And um, and I learned, uh, you know, a lot of things about how I affected them that I was not aware of. And we had a, a really good conversation. And, you know, I, I, I also think that, you know, uh, I had never made direct amends to either of my children before. Uh, and uh, but they also knew of all the countless attempts and tries that I had done to stay sober in and out of treatment. So I think they were a little leery about, well, we'll see how long this lasts. But so far with both of them, including my son, my son was not necessarily, I would thought he was going to be the easier one. And he was kind of more reserved and not as accepting. Uh, you know, he kind of listened and, and didn't have much to say, but um, you know, it, I think in both cases, our communication uh, back and forth between both of my children. I mean, they live in different parts of the country and none of them near, near me uh, is much better as a result of making amends. And there was a great relief. 
some of the other amends that I made have not been, you know, is is necessarily serious with either past relationships uh, that you know were in the past, quite a ways in the past. Uh, you know that I owe a, a pretty large sum of money, and but I can't remember the name of the person or how to contact them. So. If I ever come across that person or if I figure out how to do it, I'll, I'll be doing it. But that's my experience with making amends to, up to this point. Okay. Well, Shank, you know what? I think we'd leave it right there with Aloha. Yeah. That's I really powerful. like that. You know, about amends that you, you can't get a hold of people. So, you, you know, like your ex-wife and you just carry on because they're working on it let's move on to the battle of the books all right battle of the books let's get ready to rumble tell us Here a little bit go. about it okay so if you all have listened to past seasons we have had big book shrapnel we've had meeting shrapnel um we've had translations so what we're doing now is a battle of the books. So we're using the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 by 12. And because this is episode one, we are going to do step one. And we're going to have a reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 by 12 for step one. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're just going to vote which one we either like better relate to think sounds better um to each their own on that and whichever book gets two out of three is the one we're keeping for that step for that step okay another question would be can you actually take the step with that statement yes that's a great <laughs> question that we can add on to that it's a great question all right what do we got okay so this is round one aloha and we have step one. So from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 30, we have, we have learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. All right. And then the 12 by 12, page 21, we have, we perceive that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps toward liberation and strength. Our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turn out to be firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. It's <laughs> <is> a mouthful. <laughs> Oh. All right. So what do y'all think? Do y'all have questions, comments? I can give you just a little bit of history since this is the first um, battle of the books. We have the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, 1939. Um, we have the 12 by 12, 1953. Okay. All right. So historically, you know, I think the Big Book... Um, had more input from several people, right? Edits and such. Um, 
the 12 by 12 were essays that were written by Bill Wilson to expand on, from my understanding, um, what had been already discussed in the big book. Okay. So it's the old timer. That's the big book against the, the young one, the 12 by 12. There you go. Aloha. What do you think about these two comments, these two statements? Well, in first reading of both of them, you know, it doesn't really, it, it talks about the alcoholism, but it doesn't really specifically talk about unmanageability, which is the second part of the first step. Right. So that's a question that comes to my mind. I'm, I'm probably a firm believer that, you know, if it's working, don't mess with it. I mean, it's okay to expand upon it, you know, and that's kind of what I, the way I appear, uh, you know, uh, it seems like in the, the the 12 by 12 but i just like the succinctness of, of the you know in the big book and the way it was just plainly put out there and it, it doesn't expand yeah yeah the um so the reading in the 12 by 12 if you're out there we know that's not the real name of the book um <laughs> but that's what we're calling it 12 by 12 um, the the wording on it is a little flowery to me I guess would be a way to put it and um, as a 22 year old newcomer I don't know that I would have understood first steps towards liberation <laughs> that sounds like some kind of you know country that is being liberated or something and firm bedrock I, I don't know I mean if you're going to maybe translate something into simple English. Maybe you should look at that. The, but I did, you know, I was asked the question <laughs> out of the book, the big book on page 30. Hey, can you fully concede to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic? Now there was information kind of to Aloha's point. There was information prior to that about what it meant to be an alcoholic about the the mental obsession and the physical allergy and um, stuff on my life being unmanageable. But, you know, I think it's, it says that's the first step in recovery is being able to fully concede. And it's interesting. The word concede means you can't take it back. Mm -hmm. Right. If you concede something, that's it. It's done. And um, that was, that was that was a little helpful to me knowing that that hey i can be, i can be done with it and that it's really up to me it's not up to anybody else um and the delusion that we're like other people has to be smashed that's um i mean that's another kind of there's some qualifiers in the book that you don't necessarily know just by reading about it, but we can't We'll never be out. We'll never be able to drink successfully if we believe we're alcoholic. So, I um, I like the the big book reading better than twelve by twelve. Shank. Well, what I would say to counter what you just said, um, fully concede to our innermost selves. It does say we perceive the only through utter defeat. So I think it, it can be said that those two things are fairly similar. They are. Um, 
Utter defeat might even be easier to understand than concede. Maybe. I think so. Um, now, I do still prefer the big book, and maybe part of that is just because it was drilled into me, like, do you fully concede to your innermost self? And, you know, for me, it was like, there was just a really good example in my life of like sitting in an attorney's office, my family is there, I'm going to AA, I know I'm an alcoholic. And the attorney is like, well, I mean, that's fine. But like, oh, you're not an alcoholic. Like, you're just young and you had a car wreck. Like, ah, oh, it's just something that happens. And I remember telling my sponsor about that and being like, well, that guy just said in front of my entire family, not my entire family, that's a little dramatic, but in front of several of my family members, like, I don't think you're an alcoholic. And they are running with that. And it was drilled into me again, like, hey, do you, have you, have you fully conceded? It sounds like you have. And I was like, well, yeah, like, I don't care what that guy says. Right. <laughs> so like, I always think about that. Of like, it really doesn't matter who thinks I am or I'm not, or I could be, or if I just manage better, or if, you know, what have you. So it may just be that I have that experience that I had a sponsor I had women around me that were able to allow me to make my own decision yeah that's 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 one thing I like about the the big book reading um, now on the 12 by 12 reading I do like the idea of having a happy and purposeful life yeah I mean that <laughs> I mean that, that I, mean, I think that resonates with a lot of people because when we get here we don't have a happy and purposeful life mm-hmm. Um. But the final kicker for me is the one statement in the in the big book reading where it says, "This is the first step in recovery." Yeah. It specifically says this is the first step, and it's funny. I've been to meetings all over the place, and you'll hear some old dude, an old timer, aloha, not necessarily old in age but, but sometimes <laughs> they'll say stuff like you know the 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 big book never mentions step one and i'm like wait a minute there's cha- there's three or four chapters on step one and then right there specifically it says this is the first step in recovery so when i think too the delusion that we are like other people i mean that was big for me because i could kind of pinpoint people in my life that i'm like well, they drink the way that I drink. Like I was drinking with them and they're not an alcoholic, you know? I mean, yeah. I have different feelings about that today. I'm like, well, maybe they are, but um <laughs> you know, I have to just I have to just admit and that has helped me a lot just in my life, you know? I can yeah. be a part of my family but not have to participate in everything that's going on. Yeah. So AA has taught me that. Yeah. Aloha, you got any other thoughts on it before we decide what we want to do? Uh, no, I, I uh, you know, when, I think it's real clear. I mean, well, like you pointed out that, you know, it says we are at the first step. You know, I mean, it, it is, there isn't any black and white there. I mean, it's in black and white. I mean, it's, there's no if or. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like Bill's going with the Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Jay Wayne. Aloha, you going with the book, Alcoholics Anonymous? Definitely. Oh, okay. Boy, it's a tough one for me. Um, I'm joking. I think I am uh, 
definitely going with Alcoholics Anonymous. All right. I would say for this one, I also, three for three, we are staying with the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous reading. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is a first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. There you have it. There you have it. Round one is over, and <laughs> the book Alcoholics Anonymous is the winner of round one. Love it. Yeah. Aloha. We appreciate you coming on and being with us today. It was a joy to have you and to hear your experience on uh, Ninth Step Amends. Well, it's a pleasure if, being here and a pleasure being an honor being to be asked. I appreciate it. Stay tuned for the rest of Bill's story. Hello, my name is Bill and I'm an alcoholic. And it would be an understatement if uh, I didn't tell you that I was nervous. <laughs> and I've had many home group members uh, tell me tonight that you're just speaking among friends. And um, it doesn't, it does feel like it, but uh, it's a little bit different. But, you know, I was thinking a little bit about tonight and, and it's a little bit intimidating to be up here speaking from the pulpit. <laughs> and I kind of feel like I should say, Aloha, I've been saved, hallelujah. <laughs> because in some ways that's not too far off. I have been saved from uh, close to near death from alcoholism, and for that I'm truly grateful. A little bit about my, my background and my life. Uh, I was born in the mid-40s into a loving family. I uh, three older sisters. I was kind of a change of life baby because uh, when I went to kindergarten, a couple of those sisters were in college already. But uh, I was, you know, a precocious kid uh, up until I got to first grade, I guess. Uh, you know, I was one that uh, was always around a lot of adults and I was the one that could entertain them and do all that kind of stuff. And um, but once I started school, things really changed. Uh, I had struggled with school and, and also felt a lot different uh, from a, a lot of folks. I grew up in a neighborhood where, um, you know, I, I once asked my family, what is it? And, uh, what? and they said, well, we're, we're upper middle class. And the, the house, the people that I grew up in, I grew up in the city with the uh, street with some big houses and None of the mothers worked. They were all stay-at-home moms. And most of the people had help in the house or part-time help. Uh, and I always felt like I didn't really fit in. I always compared myself with other people, uh, whether, you know, what kind of car you drove or, you know, if you had a live-in maid and, and we didn't have that and that kind of stuff. So, but academically and athletically, I, I 
I really sucked at it. <laughs> and, and, you know, I can remember, you know, report cards would come out and my mother would be in tears and telling me I'm just not applying myself hard enough. Or, and I can remember my dad telling me that I threw baseball like a girl and I'm going to teach you how. And every night after dinner, seemed all summer long, we were out there throwing the baseball back and forth in the backyard. And I went to public school up until sixth grade, and then I went to a private school where I had to wear a coat and tie, kind of like this. And, and there again, it was always, uh, you know, on the weekends, it was with a private tutor or something like that. I went away to a boarding school or a prep school for high school. And in that, that way, I kind of blossomed. Uh, first of all, you know, I, I, looking back upon it, just to back up a little bit, you know, my first drink uh, was a sip of my mother's Harvey Bristol Cream wine. And I loved the feeling of the warmth that came over me when I drank that wine. And then I learned later on that there was a cough medicine that was called elixir terapeutic with codeine. And I learned how to fake coughs to just get that feeling. And um, so that, in high school, I, I, I blossomed socially. It was a small uh, prep school, and uh, I learned the art of um, coloring vodka to look like a mouthwash. Uh, it was called Lavoris, and it was pink, and we could color it. And I learned how to chill beer in the back of a toilet by keeping flushing it, flushing it, flushing it till it was cold enough to drink. My first real drunk that I remember was on a class trip, and also I grew up in New York State where the drinking age at that time was 18. So if you were 16, you could kind of pass, or you could get, we knew where to get stuff. And on this class trip, I went from room to room drinking whatever they had, and I remember vomiting and moving the bed over the vomit, you know, for the maid in the morning. And, uh, but I remember that, having a terrible hangover, but on the way home from that class trip, I wanted that feeling again. Because I felt like I was somebody. I, I felt like I fit in just having that alcohol on board. I uh, graduated from that high school. I went to three different colleges. The first two, um, after uh, a semester or two, uh, didn't invite me back, mainly for academic reasons. I didn't drink only on the weekends at those schools. I, I went to schools also where the drinking age in that's, those states was 21, so it wasn't quite as easy. I graduated from college. I, I, well, my first ever hearing about Alcoholics Anonymous was that um, one day um, one of my professors asked me if I wanted to go to an AA meeting. I thought, this is, this is a hotel accounting class, you know, what are you asking me to go to that for? Um, and obviously I declined. And, um, and I still have a, a mug that, uh, from my fraternity and my nickname in my fraternity was Keg. And I was the one that, I had a high tolerance for alcohol. I could drink much more than my fraternity brothers and most anybody else. I was the designated driver many times <laughs> because I was still, you know, sober enough to drive. 
I, um, I graduated from college. Uh, in the summers, I, I found some place that I really kind of fit in because it wasn't academic. I worked um, in the hotel. I worked in a hotel first as a busboy, then as a waiter, then uh, as a bar back, and I graduated to bartender, which was ideal. Um, I worked as a desk clerk, so I decided that I wanted to go into hotel administration. I went to a college that was unaccredited, that I didn't know anybody that got asked to leave for academics as long as you paid your tuition. And I graduated from that school, and I did get a job in the hotel industry. And it was ideal for an alcoholic, although I didn't really realize I was an alcoholic at the time for a long time. But I was able to drink. I usually pulled the night shift where I would be in the evening hours and close the bar and make sure that it was closed up and that kind of thing. So it worked real well. And I got transferred to a hotel to be part of the opening staff as the assistant manager. And that's where I met my wife, who was transferred there as our sales director. And one night she invited me up to her room for a, a she had a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker Black. And that proceeded to be many nights in that room, uh, the two of us having Johnny Walker Black. And, we have, and that was probably the only woman that I ever really, truly loved. And we got married, and uh, we lived in a second uh, floor wing of a country club, and I managed the country club. Moved from there to, uh, from New York State to Florida, and I was food and beverage director, probably more on beverage, um, <laughs> of a Sheraton Hotel in St. Augustine Beach. And the, eventually, after a few years, we, we had a son, and that was a, an eye-opening experience for me, because before that, my wife's world revolved around me, and now that didn't happen anymore. I was, I was in the back seat, and my son was in the front seat. And um, it was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, we uh, ended up uh, Marco Island, Florida, and I was general manager of um, Marco Island Country Club. And alcohol was always a part of my life. Uh, and I could drink any time I wanted and all the time. Uh, but there again, what I was thinking about when I was a little kid was that I was always comparing myself to other people. And I, I always felt like I didn't measure up. A thing for me was I wanted to have a house with a swimming pool because then I thought you'd arrived. Well, we got the house with the swimming pool, but uh, you know, the marriage was kind of on the rocks, and uh, things weren't going really, really well. And uh, I uh, got drunk, came home one night, told my wife that I was leaving, that I was in another relationship, and I left 10 minutes later. And that's something I'm not very proud of. Um, eventually, and I was in that relationship 10 minutes later. That person didn't know that it was going to be a relationship until they <laughs> rang on their doorbell. 
but not too long in that relationship, uh, I was given an ultimatum. You're drinking too much. If you don't quit drinking or cut down, I'm leaving. Well, what does a good alcoholic do? I drank. And so, you know, uh, was told, well, you know, I'm moving out tomorrow. Uh, so I, I went on a bender. I, I drove to the other side of, the, of Florida uh, and uh, stayed for a few days, came back into that relationship. And drinking was a part of my life from morning to night. And um, I, uh, I was really upset about the breakup of the marriage, actually. And I can remember walking around the house and going into my kids' bedrooms and just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and just didn't know what to do. One night, um, no different than any other night I was drinking, and I ended up driving myself to a treatment facility. And, you know, it was, I don't know what time of night, but it was not early. I rang the doorbell and they let me in and they accepted me. And I was at that treatment center for about six weeks. And the thing about that place was, uh, it was a plush place. It was on a golf course. We had a swimming pool. There was a fountain in the atrium. Uh, and uh, we had a, we had a little for the we had a little snack bar for the for the patients that we could they stocked it with Haagen Dazs ice cream and <laughs> and I thought that it was fabulous I wanted to stay there for the rest of my life and and uh, but you know I graduated we had a big ceremony when I left treatment. And I thought, I'm free now. I'm rid of that person. I, you know, I'm free. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the AA poster child. And, and I, you know, I, it's kind of like I've been saved. Or at least I thought. Well, that lasted about five days. And uh, I was lonely. So I went to a beach that, uh, well, one end of it was kind of new, and I, 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 I took a 12-pack a with me, and I was at the beach, and, and then I don't really remember leaving the beach, but um, the next thing I remembered was a, a bump or something, and I had sideswiped a row of cars in old Naples, Florida, which is a pretty... Um, affluent area and I think there was a couple of Jaguars and I don't know what but anyway and I also bought myself a puppy in the blackout <laughs> and in that in that blackout I went back to the treatment center and here I am I'm, I'm banged up I'm bleeding my knees and 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 um, you know, they took me in and they took my puppy and the next thing, and, and, and they didn't let me back in where the rooms were, they just took me in and the next thing I know, there was the police were there, the EMTs were there, 
and I was off in an ambulance to the ER and you know there was a couple policemen outside the door and I thought oh that's really nice they're concerned about me you know that why I'm getting stitched up well I ended up in jail and you have to realize I was in jail with these short little jogging shorts white clogs and um, a Key West tie-dyed tank top and here I am in the drunk tank and I did not feel safe well, I, I got bailed out, and the treatment center told me, we're not taking you back. So what I did was, and, but you need long-term treatment. So I did a geographic, I, I, of course, you know, I'm somebody. So I flew first class to the island of Kauai in Hawaii. And I went to a treatment facility that was an old wooden building. They picked me up in this rickety old station wagon. And I walked in there. I was the only white person. And I couldn't understand what they were saying because it was mostly all pigeon. Well, I was in there for six months and I learned a lot of things. I learned some humility for sure. And I had, uh, one of the things that we used to have to do was we had to write a gratitude list every night and we had to leave it on the kitchen table. Um, and there was a guy named Henry there who was pure Hawaiian and didn't read or write. So I was assigned to him to be his scribe and Henry and I became very, very close friends. And up until the day he died many years ago, we were close friends. I was friends with his family. And I learned a lot from him about humility and about the Hawaiian way of living and thinking. And it was, it was a, a, a wonderful experience for me. I was in that treatment facility for six months and they used to take us to meetings every night, but to go to a meeting every night, you had to go one side of the island one on Monday night, the other side of the island on, on uh, Tuesday, then you went to the where the, the hometown was or where the county seat was on Wednesday, and it was that's the way it was. And you knew everybody at every meeting. I met, I, and I met somebody there at an AA meeting, and um, I was getting out of treatment. I didn't know what I was going to do. And he had a buyer for his boat in Australia. And he asked me if I would finance the trip. And as a result of that, I got to sail from Honolulu to Sydney, Australia. Had never been sailing before in my life with a straight man for two and a half months. Uh, some days scared shitless. I mean, some days we were like this for, for a week or so at a time and you had to tie yourself into your bunk so you wouldn't fall out. We were on two hour shifts. As soon as I got to Sydney, Australia, I was out of there. I, I uh, moved into a, a, a bed and breakfast. I attended a lot of AA meetings. I met a lot of really good people. And I met, went to AA meetings that were like in the town and like the Bowery. And they would, it was a homeless shelter and they would push a cart up and down and, and uh, hand out coffee and cigarettes to, the, to people so they'd stay there. I, as a result of that, I spent a, a month there, then I spent 
a month in New Zealand going to meetings, and they talked a little bit different than the people did in, in Sydney. Um, went to Fiji, Rorotonga and the Cook Islands. Uh, this was on my way back, not by boat, I flew. <laughs> went to Tahiti for a week, and then back to Honolulu in reality. And then I had this bright idea, I would go back to that relationship in Florida, which I thought, well, oh, it's gonna be different this time. Well, it lasted maybe a month or six weeks until we had an argument over the color of carpeting that we were gonna put in the um, place. And of course, what, a, what does an alcoholic do but drink over it? So I was out of there again, and I moved into uh, a halfway house. It was an old Victorian house right on the beach. You know, I didn't, at that time, you know, I, I went as first class as I could. <laughs> so it was a great experience, and um, I got into another relationship, and that ended, and so, what do you do but drink? I can tell you my story is that I've been in six different treatment facilities and I've been in countless psych wards that I can't remember. Countless numbers of suicide attempts. I was never really had the guts to like shoot myself or anything like that. It was always just take all the pills that I had. Um, and I went back to the treatment facility in Hawaii for another six months. Things were a little bit different then. You know, it was, I was a little bit more ready and willing to listen. And, you know, I started doing the steps. I, but I had what I would call kind of Burger King kind of sobriety where I pick and choose which steps I want to do, you know. And, or I justify like, oh, a ninth step is that, you know, it's like the amend to the Constitution. It's just that you've changed. <laughs> but, you know, it's too, too difficult to really have to sit there and look at your part. And so I didn't do it the way the big book had. And, and I had, you know, uh, but I also gained a lot of humility because I ended up being homeless. Then I lived in a way station uh, and there was a scales in it and you couldn't stand up all the way down. It didn't have running water. Uh, I had to go to a main building to use the bathroom. There was a spigot on the outside of the house and uh, I lived there for a while, ended up in another psych ward again, um, lived for a while on my sponsor's floor, um, mattress on the floor in the living room. I got a job, uh, and then I, I moved on up, as the Jeffersons would say. I moved uh, into an abandoned um, gas station and I had to pay somebody to put a door on it because there was no door. I lived there for three years and I went to meetings on a regular basis. Uh, I eventually was able to move out of there and uh, move uh, into a, a real dwelling. I mean, 
that, that, you know, there was a stove, a refrigerator, hot and cold running water, which I didn't have at the other two places. Um, and I was doing well. Actually, uh, I got a job, believe it or not, as a case manager in an adult mental health division of Kauai Community Mental Health Center. And I was the case manager there, and I loved it. And also, I became one of the facilitators of the dual diagnosis program, which was for people with mental illness and substance use issues. Uh, and I was involved in AA. I still hadn't completed the steps the way that is suggested, but I became a GSR, and then I became a, a DCM or district chairperson, uh, and I, I, I thrived on, on that type of thing. And eventually, um, believe it or not, I became the alternate area chair. And, um, and then 9-11 uh, happened, and Prior to that, because I had to move, when I got, to, uh, I got a promotion, and I had to move to Oahu, where Honolulu is. I can tell you, the people don't do meet the meetings the way I wanted them done. I didn't get a sponsor, so I decided, what the hell, I'm not going to these meetings, because I don't like the way they're doing them. And I did that for like, probably five years of, White knuckle sobriety is what I refer to it as. And then what happened was uh, there was 9-11. And 9-11 came along and I got a, a cheap ticket to Japan for two weeks. I had a Japanese uh, rail pass and I went to Japan and I went, you know, sightseeing many places. I would spend time in Tokyo, spent time in Kyoto, Osaka, and I was in this little island and I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> um, I had to change, change trains in Hiroshima, I remember that. And I was in uh, a restaurant. Nobody spoke English. I don't know how, I picked something off the menu or whatever. And there was a table next to me. Somebody ordered a tall draft beer. I just looked over. No thought about it. I had lost all defense against having a drink. I pointed to that, and that set me off and running. I drank three beers that night. I don't know how many the next night. Uh, flew back. And um, they had upgraded me into business class, so I was able to drink on the plane. Uh, and I was able to control my drinking once I got back and, and um, was working uh, during the day. But I would stop on my way home, pick up a 12-pack, finish it, and then maybe sometimes have two trap packs so that if I, I had needed more than 12, I'd have more than 12. I was in a relationship that uh, I asked the person, um, you know, do you think I'm an alcoholic? Of course, I never told them about my past at all. None of these people I ever told about my past. 
why would you do that? I mean, it might spoil a good thing. And um, so they said, no, you know, you're probably a functioning alcoholic. And I was like, ha, that's perfect. That's perfect, you know. That allows me to be able to continue to drink and to live the way I want to live. Nobody was telling me I didn't have, I shouldn't be drinking like it had happened in other relationships or other situations. It wasn't like AA was on my neck because the AA police didn't even know where I was. I mean, they didn't know that I existed in Eva Beach. Um, and, you know, it happened where, you know, once in a while I couldn't remember what happened. But usually, you know, I made sure somebody drove me around if I knew I was going out to eat. And, you know, eating got to be more drinking than eating most of the time. And uh, I did that for 20 years. I had 15 years of sobriety and 15 years in the program. And many of those 15 years, life was pretty good. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. But once I picked up, life was a lot, lot different. And I uh, retired and moved here mainly because of the cost of living after I retired. And when I moved here, aha. I don't have a job anymore. I don't have any responsibility other than my dog and paying my mortgage. And after all, I deserve to be able to drink and, and do those things that, you know, I envisioned retirement. Not sitting on a golf course, but sitting at home by myself drinking. I had a couple places that I used to go, and I had a couple bar stools that I was a regular at, and people knew that I was a regular there. And then I'd have periods of time where I would say that I was going to quit. I ended up uh, in uh, a place in this area, I, I refer to it as um, holy hell. <laughs> and. Uh, um, I got out of there, uh, and on my way home, filled the prescriptions that they gave me, uh, stopped and got some beer, went home, and I forgot to tell you, you know, drugs aren't a really big part of my story, because I never drank, smoked Pacalolo until <laughs> I was 55 years old. And if you don't know what Pacalolo is, it means pocket is smoke and crazy is Lolo. Well, I've been in a lot of Lolo places, you know, that I, the insurance paid for. But, um, you know, and then I, I learned to do some, a few other things. So I went home after leaving, um, holy hell, and um, had my, my stash and finished that you know, just out of, out of the psych ward. Um, and I would have periods of time, and there's some people in this room that have seen me uh, where I thought I was fooling them because they'd come early in the morning in my house to walk my dog, and I'd have a cup of coffee there, 
but I'd have a beer in the bookcase right next to me. Uh, and towards the end, it got to, I could not go more than two hours without a drink. I was shaking all the time. I uh, wasn't really eating. My, my idea of, of eating for the day was a lean cuisine, one. Um, and it just got to the point where the last six months, I was in wake med six times. I was falling down and breaking heirloom furniture. I would fall down and I couldn't get up and I'd sometimes scurry myself to my bed and then I'd sit against the bed until I could get up again, if I could. I had a, a roommate that would help me up sometimes. Many times I'd, I'd come to and, and, and I'd be bleeding or that kind of thing. And the, it was a living hell. I had two physicians tell me that if I kept on doing, I wasn't gonna live more than maybe six to nine months. And I wasn't sure if I really wanted to live or not because I felt like I had nothing really to live for. Maybe my dog. And I even remember asking somebody, if something help happens to me, will you find my dog a good home? And that person's in this room right now. And it got to the point, it was no burning bush or, or aha awakening moment. I thought, okay, I'll try one more time. I don't really know if it's gonna work this time. I just really didn't. So I asked somebody else in this room if they'd give me a ride to Triangle Springs not knowing if it was going to work or not work, but I was willing to try one more time. And that's all it took. I went to Triangle Springs and I had an awesome roommate who I'm so honored that he came here tonight. Um, and uh, I did everything they told me in Triangle Springs. They told me, well, you know, for the first two days or so, you don't have to go to groups if you don't feel like it. Well, I didn't feel like it, but I went. I went because I was scared not to go. I can remember walking out of the treatment and crying because I was afraid to leave. And I met some wonderful people there, both patients and staff and I came to there is a solution which was meeting in Holly Springs and I remember going up there with my walker and it was meeting in the annex which is just the wooden building behind the church and there were a bunch of people outside smoking cigarettes and somebody said can I help you up the stairs sat me down kind of in the front row there was like a, an aisle in between sat me down there and it was hot as hell in that building i remember that 
And, and there was all these people laughing, and, and that person got me a cup of coffee, and I sat there, and Madeline was chairing the meeting. And uh, I remember Charles spoke, or was called upon, and I left there, and I had a couple of phone numbers. So I called and asked to ride for the next meeting, which was a Thursday. And it was in the big church then, I mean. And uh, there again, somebody gave me a cup of coffee, and I left that meeting with probably 20 men's phone numbers. And I, I, I called, you know, to get to rides, and I hated doing that. I didn't like being dependent upon people. I didn't like being dependent at all. Um, and I was, I was still in partial hospitalization from Triangle Springs. And I can remember the therapist there, I don't know why she picked on me, but she always seemed to pick on me. And she told me, you gotta get a sponsor by Friday. So of course, you know, I'm a, I'm a person, I gotta find somebody perfect, you know, and, uh, but, you know, we're not perfect. <laughs> so anyway, it got to the Friday and I, thought, okay, I'm going to call this person. Well, I called them, and they were in New Jersey. And he said, all right, I'll be your sponsor. He said, you know, it's not a marriage. If it doesn't work out, we'll, we'll meet, we'll separate amicably. But call me every day, and don't drink in between calls. And I've still been doing that. I'm doing it. I missed a few days. Uh, and I think that sometimes I'm probably a pain in the butt. I mean, now it's not always calling, it's texting. But that man took me through the big book. I thought, oh, I know this thing, you know? I had sold all my big book and all this stuff that I had in a garage sale before I moved here. But it's like, oh, I know this, I know this. And no, we had to start with the preface. The doctor's opinion. And we had to talk about it. I was like, Come on, can we move? Can we move? You know, let's start the steps. And I finally said to him, he said, oh, I guess we can, you know, kind of move you along a little bit. Well, it was the best thing that happened to me because I got to digest those steps. I already knew that my life was unmanageable and I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. And my idea, I didn't know what my idea of a higher power was. I didn't grow up in a real religious family. And, and so I, I got this concept, you know, like, well, there's something out there that is keeping these people sober. And I've heard the expression, well, group of drunks, so okay, I could use them. Or, you know, there was a power of, I could see an orderly direction, like good orderly direction, or God. We, uh, the, the sun came up in the east and it set in the west, and then the seasons were seasons, so there was some good orderly direction. And then I, you know, I, I like visualization kind of stuff, because I'm not a good reader and that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, 
you know, why don't I go to the spiritual buffet and take a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of this and make that my higher power. Something I forgot to tell you that I was hoping to tell you earlier was growing up as that kid, you know, I was the only boy and I had older sisters and I was alone a lot at home. And I had an imaginary friend. And I used to talk to my imaginary friend. I remember talking to my imaginary friend when my dog was uh, hit by a truck and killed. I mean, they were my two best friends, my dog and my imaginary friend. Well, today, I have an imaginary friend, and I call him God. I talk to my imaginary friend every day. I pray every day. And we moved along those steps. You know, and, and we got to the third step, and I can remember thinking, damn, you know, I don't think I can get down on my knees, and I didn't think I could get up. And I was looking at these things here and thinking, well, maybe I should pray there, but this wouldn't get me up here. Um, but my sponsor and I, he, we read and we said the third step prayer t- together. Then the fourth step, uh, he had me do it exactly the way it was in the book. You know, okay, this week write down your resentments. And then, okay, next week what part did you play? You know, went step by step by step. And then I knew, game, the fifth one's coming up. And uh, we, we did the fifth step together. And, you know, he wasn't really shocked about anything. Uh, or at least if he was, he didn't let me know that or it didn't appear to be. And we moved pretty rapidly, you know, right through six and seven. And then it came to the eighth step. And it was like, oh no, oh no. And so I was able to make a list, kind of like for Christmas and checking it twice. Uh, <laughs> And I, I was more naughty than nice. And uh, so we got to the ninth step. And I can tell you that I have done what I believe would be my two hardest ninth steps. And that's my ex-wife and my two children. And I found out things of ways that I didn't realize that I had hurt them. I found out things that they knew about me that I didn't know they knew, like, for example, a DUI. And, but I kept coming to meetings every day. I still go to um, many meetings a week, sometimes two, sometimes with the advent of Zoom, Zoom meetings. Uh, 30 days sober, I started going uh, with the H&I person of my home group to take meetings into uh, Triangle Springs and Wakebrook. And those were some things that were really helpful for me to, be, to give back what I could. I took suggestions, whether it was, okay, you know, you, we're going to set up the meeting, and so you can set up the literature because that's something you can do. And 
little things like that, going to meetings and supporting other members when they speak. I felt for the first time that I'm a part of something and a part of people. And every day I practice the 11th step. My awareness of my higher power is continuing to grow and grow and grow. And I forgot to tell you, I do have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. And when the opportunity comes, I'm available to be a sponsor. But it's on God's terms, in God's time, not my time. But I like to reach out to people that I don't see in the meetings. I, uh, I can tell you that I've had a blast in sobriety too. Um, you know, I've done road trips, the Freedom Van, uh, van and, and uh, I've eaten at more Mexican restaurants than I'd care to eat in. And I can feel that like the people, although as different as I am and as quirky as I am, they love me, they support me, and I feel loved both by my higher power and I couldn't have done it without Alcoholics Anonymous and the people in this room and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous in the whole area. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment, suggestion, or just need help, you can email Shank and Wayne at freedom at alcoholicsalive.com. Remember, we're recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do we get paid. Join us next week for another great episode. Thank you.